Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Manager of Nursing Education for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Today's episode, we have invited Vanessa Batista, a Certified Pediatric Nurse Practitioner, Certified pediatric palliative nurse to join us to share with us her journey as a as a pediatric palliative care nurse practitioner um, throughout her extensive career in pediatric nursing. And Vanessa shares with us today a remarkable story about a patient that she cared for who set the 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 foundation for her um, to can that Taylor strike that. Vanessa shares with us today a story, a remarkable story about a patient and the impact that it can have on not only her career, but the careers of us in palliative nursing today. So welcome, Vanessa, and thank you for joining us today here at HPNA. We are looking forward to your story about pediatric palliative care and hospice nursing and your career that you've spent contributing to the care of these this vulnerable patient population. So if you could start us off today with uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here and I appreciate the invitation to be a part of this important series. Uh, my name is Vanessa Batista, as you said, and I, I am a pediatric nurse practitioner. I live and work in Philadelphia at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I have been here in Philadelphia for about I guess going on eight years now, and prior to that, I was working in Boston and also, and then prior to that, New York. And so I feel pretty fortunate that I've had the opportunity to work in palliative care in some capacity in several large children's hospitals now, or at least a few on the East Coast. And I wasn't always full-time in, in palliative care. I've um, really started out my career in neuromuscular care, which is also what I do now. And um, it feels like it's kind of come full circle for me because I, I went into palliative care sort of because of my experiences in the neuromuscular world, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. And now I have the opportunity to do some palliative care back in the neuromuscular world. And so I've had sort of a range of experiences. I did also spend about six years at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia full-time on the palliative care team here as well. So um, that's a little bit about my background and it's just um, been a great opportunity to work with lots of different folks in different areas. I also, when I was in Boston, I worked at the hospital, but I also at the Children's Hospital there. I also taught pediatric palliative care at the Boston College School of Nursing. And so that was also a wonderful way to uh, bring palliative care skills to students and to share my experiences that way and to learn together with all of them. And so um, it's been a, a great journey so far in pediatric palliative care for me. So Vanessa, when you talk about neuromuscular pediatric palliative care, what is it specifically that you're, you're speaking of when you're specialized in that particular aspect of, of nursing? Hmm. That's a good question. It's, it is, it's changed a little bit because when I first started out, I actually began my career in working with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, as many people know it with adults, which is a neuromuscular disease. And 
palliative care there was so prominent because there there's still no cure for that disease. There is some treatment now, but there is um, not not a cure. And so a lot of the work we were doing there is palliative. And one of the nurse practitioners I learned from had actually done a lot of work in palliative care. And so I think I really first learned my nursing skills and my nurse practitioner skills within a context, a clinical context that involved palliative care. It wasn't palliative care specifically, but the work that we were doing always involved some aspect of palliative care because when you're working with diseases that don't have treatment or cure, then you're essentially doing palliative care in many ways. And while we would, you know, while I was in neuromuscular, we'd sometimes work directly with the palliative care team if there were specific you know, pain and symptom management things. But a lot of times the work that we were doing was palliative care in itself in that we had you know, and, and have now, I'm still doing this work, have relationships with our families. And so you end up talking about things like goals of care and discussions about what they would want and what their wishes are. And so I always wanted to do pediatrics. When I, I, I switched then from adult neuromuscular to pediatric neuromuscular um, diseases or the, the area, and that was when I really shifted from there to pa more palliative care because there were no treatments or cures for these diseases. And so it just felt to me like we needed to do more for families. It wasn't enough to say, and it still isn't enough to say, well, you know, we can do these things. We can give you a BiPAP machine if you need one. We can give you some medications and then send you on your way and we'll see you in three or six months. It's what is life like in that time in between visits and what are all the things you need to maintain a good quality of life and there's so many other pieces of providing this care within a neuromuscular context that really rely on palliative care. And so I think that's what sort of drew me into palliative care. It's changed a little bit now because we do have treatments for some of these diseases, such as spinal muscular atrophy. There's not yet a cure, but there are treatments. And so I think some of the palliative care focus there has shifted to helping families make decisions. And really relying on my palliative care skills to talk through difficult decisions with families about which treatment is best and what's worth doing and you know making a decision when the long-term outcomes may not be known yet since these treatments are all new and so there's still a lot of skills i rely on daily and then of course there's many diseases we see that do not have any treatment yet and so it's really just blending in the palliative care pieces in the everyday care we provide so when you talk about the pediatric palliative care approach within this specific patient population, you're not only dealing with the, the, the families and the decision-making in that component, but you're also, as these patients age into their disease or their disease progresses through, through their, what am I trying to say, Vanessa, their age progression, they yes. also become part of this decision-making process. And so, can you talk to us a little bit about how you balance the decision-making capacity, or not capacity, but decision-making discussions um, with the actual patient themselves with these progressive diseases? Sure, so that's actually a really interesting point that you bring up, Julie, because there is a little bit of a difference, right? When you're doing this in pediatrics versus the adult world, because the parent or guardian or caregiver, whoever it may be for a specific child and their family 
maybe the one making the decisions, right? If the child's young and not old enough to make their own decisions, then it defaults to the parent or the guardian as the decision maker. And so the, in those instances, when decisions do need to be made, it's pretty clear cut of, you would talk with the parents about it. And, you know, once children are old enough to weigh in with their opinion, there's, we have legal ages for giving assent. certainly. It's usually around seven or eight, depending on where you are, somewhere between seven and 10 generally. Um, but that's when children might legally be allowed to give their opinion. But even whether it's legally the age limit or not, children often weigh in in, in something and may make their opinion known. But for the most part, it's the parent that's making a decision. I think as we, as, as, children grow into adolescence and young adults and it becomes really important to think about making decisions on their own and making decisions about what they would want for the rest of their life and it's an area that i've spent a lot of time thinking about lately and writing about and sort of working on is as we uh let's see so children with neuromuscular disease and with many diseases now, these diseases are considered chronic, whereas before they were not. Things like HIV and AIDS and cystic fibrosis and sickle cell disease and many of these diseases were, are now considered chronic diseases, which is a great thing due to many medical advances. But what happens is that as these medical advances are made and children are living into adolescence and young adulthood and even adulthood, the landscape shifts a little bit and we're now there's a big push and transition of care which is moving children and young adults from pediatric care into the adult world and as they do that we have a responsibility to really prepare them for what lies ahead and to talk with them about their goals and their wishes and so as we prepare them now there's so many pieces involved. There's the physical piece. There's the, you know, all the medical needs. Do you know how to get your medication? Do you know how to navigate your insurance? Do you know how to get all the equipment do you need? But we really also have to include a piece about have you thought about your goals of care and what is it that you want the rest of your life to look like? And we hope the day is very far from now where you may need to make a decision about the end of your life. But when and if that day comes, what what would you want? Do you want to be on machines? You know, who do you want with you? What do you want your care to be like? Do you want to be at home? All of these important topics are now a necessary part of transitioning uh, people from the uh, pediatric world to the adult world. So it's really um, a necessary piece that we can't ignore. You know, having all of these elements and transitioning patients from, you know, pediatric young adult um, adolescents into adult primary care or adult palliative care. You had done a webinar about this for us a couple of um, months back. Mm -hmm. And I remember that it, looking at the reviews of that particular webinar, how the nurses that were listening and the providers that were listening didn't fully appreciate all of those dynamics that go into place that you just listed. And, you know, it's one thing where we have an opportunity in the adult world or with adult palliative care to know that we, you know, they've had a chance to kind of figure this out, hopefully over time with, with the progressive illness um, or chronic illness and, and listening to you trying to have those types of conversations and do that counseling and mentoring for the, the young adult and the 
the adolescent patient population is, is remarkable. Thank you, Vanessa, for, for educating us about the importance of that. That seems, I would find that to be an extremely difficult aspect of my career. And so I'm curious, what would you see as the most difficult aspect of your pediatric palliative care career? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking the, the important question. I think it's something that people are not thinking about or not appreciating enough right now, as you mentioned, but I think we're, we're not gonna have a choice soon because kids are living longer and that's a great thing. And we don't always see that side of things in palliative care, but um, as we do, we're gonna have to shift the way we approach this so that we can, um, we're doing a disservice to families if we don't bring these things up, right? Because then you end up, in the place where no one wants to be in palliative care, which is at the end of someone's life before having had any of these important conversations. And so I think we'll, we'll get there slowly, but really trying to incorporate these things in, it is important. So I appreciate you raising that question. It's when I think about some of the things that are the most difficult parts of my career or my work thus far in, in pediatric palliative care is that, you know, the, the work in, Working in pediatric palliative care many days feels like a privilege and it really feels like a gift to be able to be into, to be in or to enter into such a sacred space with a family. And it's, it is an honor and it is a privilege and you, you do feel really um, like you are, you are in just this, this sacred and precious space with a family because you can't imagine them going through anything worse than the very serious illness or life-threatening illness or death of their child that they love, right? Or their sibling or whoever it may be for that family member, their grandchild. It's the death of a child or a young adult is, is always a difficult thing. And so the work feels uh, so special and and again, I know I keep using the word privilege, but it really does feel like a privilege to enter into that space with, with a family and to be there through parts of those journey and to grow with them and learn with them and um, get to love them in many instances and to just be by their side as you go through all of this. But, but in saying all of that, it, it doesn't mean that that work is always easy, even though it's a privilege. It's, um, there are times when it's hard and many times when it's hard. And I think the most challenging pieces are when you feel like, or when I feel like I can't make it better in some way. And quote, I use that sort of quote unquote, make it better because in palliative care, you can't always make things better. Right. And when you talk with families, the making it better is the, I would like for my child or my loved one. I use the word child, but I mean, child, adolescent, young adult. Um, I, everybody wants for there to be a cure and for them to get better, obviously. I think that goes without saying. And so, you know, if you ask a family, it's why we don't use the phrase anymore. We try not to ever use the words about do everything, right? Well, who is going to say to you, please do just a little something for the person I love, right? Everybody wants you to quote unquote, do everything all the time because the goal is to make it the best you can possibly make it for that family. But in palliative care, you often can't make it better, again, in quotes, in the sense that families would like that. They would like for their child um, or for themselves, if they are the child or adolescent, if they are the patient, they would like 
their ultimate wish would be for this to the illness to go away and for them to carry on with a normal life and for them to get better. And, and you can't do that, unfortunately. And when people are coming to you in palliative care, they're obviously not in a space where that can happen. And so I think the real challenge in the work is trying to figure out how you can somehow, again, quotes here, make it better for that family or that child or that adolescent and not, make it better in making it go away, make it better, but making it better in making a really terrible situation, perhaps a little bit more positive or the best experience it can be. And it feels funny to even talk about some of these things because you say to a person or you describe to them, you know, you're taking care of a child at the end of their life, what could be better about that? But it's, it's the challenges in trying to meet families' needs and trying to look at the situation and say, what is it that even about today we can make a little better? What is it that you're hoping for today? Maybe it's you know, moving from the ICU to a regular hospital room. Maybe it's getting home. Maybe it's making it and being able to be a part of graduation or the prom or whatever it may be. And I think the ultimate challenge there is just trying to find ways to do that because some days you feel like you can't, and some days you actually can't. Some days you, you, you can't give a family what their wish is or get them to be able to go to an event that they'd like to go to. And I think that in itself is a challenge in that knowing that you can't always um, be helpful and you try and you try and do the best that you can, but there's just some situations where you can't do that. And so I think, I know that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I hope my, my point is clear in that the biggest challenge is trying to find some piece of this where you can perhaps make a really terrible situation for a family even just a little bit better in some, in some positive way. Listening to you say that, you know, the you know, make it better, you know, it, it is, it just puts it all into words. I mean, people ask us all the time that are outside of the specialty, how do you do what you do? Well, I think you just summed it up beautifully. You do what you do to make it as good as it can possibly be. You know, we want them to be able to end well, to, to have their wishes respected and, um, Thank you for, for reminding us of that, Vanessa. Um, so as far as countering that particular, you know, difficult aspect of, of your career, I would think that the opposite side of that is, is why do you keep doing what you do? What do you see as rewarding? What is it that you do to keep yourself balanced, to keep yourself making it as good as it can be, making it a little bit better, whatever that may be. How do you keep yourself there, Vanessa? Hmm. I think, Julie, there isn't an easy answer to that question, right? I, people ask all the time, right? If you, I often joke, you know, I'm, I'm single. And so I joke about having bad dates. And if, if, uh, if I'm interested in continuing the date and want to continue a conversation with somebody, when they ask me what I do, I say, I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner. If I want the date to be over and wish to quickly end the conversation, I say, 
I'm a pediatric palliative care nurse practitioner and take care of children at the end of their life. And, and that usually ends things pretty quick. And so it's, you know, the next line is then check, please. Right. And so I think it's, it, it is hard to stay in this work. And I think people hear it and always say, as you've probably experienced as well, how do you do that? That must be so hard. How do you do that? And yes, it is hard and it will always be hard because no one wants to think about children or young adults being at the end of their life. So that inherently is hard. And there are many aspects of it that feel difficult. You know, I talked a little bit about, or a lot a bit about the parts of the, the struggle to try and make things a little better for families. But there are other parts that are hard, like trying to get symptoms under control when you, you it's difficult to do that and try and adequately manage somebody's pain. And right, there are many aspects of, the, of it that are hard, but, the, despite all of that, I think the pieces that bring us back or bring me back at least is the joy that comes in doing this work every day and the fact that you can in some ways make a pretty terrible situation a little bit better. And I, I'm not talking about the glory part of that to say, oh, great, I did something for this family and it seems better, but it's it's seeing that... Um, some of some of the wishes fulfilled. It's seeing a family who is able to turn around and say to you when their child dies, that was beautiful. And I remember the first time a family said that to me, it was like, well, what? Like how are, they're explaining their child's death as something that was beautiful when their child just died. And that seems horrible, but it's knowing that you're a part of that and making families or allowing families to be able to have that perspective where it feels beautiful or it feels like it went the best that it could go. And again, no one's ever going to say that this is a good experience, certainly, but, but, but there's the, there's the satisfaction and the, and the real joy in having this experience. And I remember a hospice nurse years ago, once saying to me, she said, you know, everybody says, how do you take care of dying children. And she said, well, when, when they die, I'm not taking care of them anymore. Right. She said, my job is to take care of them while they're alive. And I think that's where the real joy comes in, in this work and the, the love in this work, because you're, you get to be a part of people's lives and you get to share in these amazing experiences and you get to see the kindness of humanity. People rally in an amazing way around a child who is sick and you see hospice nurses who are out in the field and in the trenches every single day go through literally heroic measures to do something for a child or a young adult because it will matter to them and make a difference in their life. And those are the moments that keep you coming back. It's just um, being a part of these experiences, seeing families come together, having children live a, a joyful experience and um, really appreciating that in a different way, knowing that it may be one of the last times they get to experience something. It's just, there, there is um, so much goodness in, in being a part of that. And I think that's the piece that keeps me coming back day after day. So tell us about a patient or a patient family that stands out in your pediatric palliative nursing career that you'll always remember and why that patient? Uh, well, that's always a tough question because I think there, there are lots of families 
and patience that will stand out. There's so many experiences that are just profound, but I, there is there is one young man that I cared for who I will certainly never forget. And uh, when he was dying, I actually promised him that he would never be forgotten. And so I make it my my personal responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. But um, this was a young man whose name was Colin, and I have permission to use his name from his mother. And he is a, a young adult. He was about probably 16 or 17 when I first met him and met him early on when he had cancer. And our team met him to help with some symptom management. And then we were not as involved for a while because he was doing better. And then he had a relapse and had some other complications and pulmonary team was involved and he was being considered for lung transplant. And there was lots of, of, of pieces of his medical care that were sort of complex for him. He had an infection that was getting difficult to manage. So it wasn't a simple case, but we got called back in probably almost two years after we had first met him. And I remember receiving the call from the nurse practitioner on the oncology team asking us to go see him. And I was hesitant to go because the way it was described was that Colin at this point was, had pain that was really difficult to manage and he was depressed and stoic and flat and they weren't, they were having a hard time connecting with him and trying to figure out how to best help him. And so being asked to enter into that is difficult, right? Facing or working with an adolescent who knows that they're facing the end of their life and is depressed and anxious is just a really difficult thing. And so I, I went, I went to clinic the next week and I met with Colin and the first visit was hard. We didn't, we didn't get very far and he was stoic and flat and depressed and didn't say much and gave him some pain medication and left there feeling pretty defeated and unsure how I'd help him. But I kept going back and I got to know Colin week after week and then month after month and got to know him pretty well. And he we developed quite a special relationship and I was kind of surprised because adolescents have never been my favorite population. And um, just because it's hard, it's a hard time in life. And so um, they're sometimes tough to work with, although usually an amazing experience. And I, I, but I kept going back and I got to know him and I developed a relationship with him. And sometimes Colin wouldn't say anything to me during our visits and, but he, he rarely asked me to go away. So I would just kind of sit with him and sometimes he would do a magic trick or sometimes he'd tell me a story or sometimes he would just open up and talk with me and tell me how he felt like no one was listening to him or how no one was telling him the truth or he had a lot of unanswered questions. And so eventually over time, I began to become Colin's advocate and I remember he called one night when I was on call and I answered the call phone. He said he, he couldn't sleep. It was late at night and he was feeling anxious and depressed. And then he very distinctly said to me, I feel like I'm on a, an island by myself and there's a tidal wave coming at me and there's nothing I can do about it. And I, 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 I didn't know what to say in that call initially. And I had to remind myself to really just be quiet and listen. 
And that was one of the greatest things I learned from Colin and my experience of working with him was to just really be quiet and listen and just let him talk. And uh, in that call in particular with Colin, I realized that I really did need to be his voice and become his advocate because he felt like his voice wasn't being heard and that he felt very helpless. And so um, after that, after that call with Colin, things shifted a little bit and he, he really wanted a pet get go but he wasn't allowed to get one because of all of the, the risk of infection. And so we had a meeting with the oncology team with Colin's permission after, after that call, he told me I could share some things with the team. So he wasn't at the meeting we had, but in that meeting, I told the oncology team, you know, it's time to let him get the gecko. And everyone was like, what, what, you know, we can't do that. There's a risk of infection. And I just, I said, no, we have to, we, we sort of needed to shift at that point from figuring out what would make Colin better to what would make Colin happy and to give him a good quality of life. And so we told Colin he was allowed to get the gecko. And it was one of the first times that I remember him having a smile on his face. And so we, we really shifted from that point on to allowing Colin to focus on what would make him happy. And eventually Colin became quite quite ill and he was in the ICU and he was intubated and we were kind of stuck for a little while and unsure of how we would get out of this. And um, one night, Colin, I was leaving work. I had said goodbye to him, just goodbye for the day. He was going home and his mother paged me and said to come back. And I went back to the room and Colin couldn't speak at that point because he was intubated, but he wrote on a board um, to me I'm ready to stop. And, you know, we went back and forth and made sure this is what Colin wanted. And he, he undoubtedly did. He said he was ready to stop and he wanted us to remove the ventilator. And so um, Colin asked me if I would remove his ventilator that night. And I have never had quite an experience with a patient before nor since. And it was certainly one of the most memorable nights of my career that I will never, ever forget. And we did, we all rallied together, the oncology team, the ICU team, myself, his, his mom was there and, and his stepfather. And we, 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 did, we removed the ventilator, we carried out Colin's wishes. And it was in that process when saying goodbye to Colin, the final goodbye to Colin, um, I told him that he wouldn't be forgotten. And I, and I told him all the things I had learned from him, which were how to, be his voice. You know, I thanked him for allowing me to advocate for him. And he, he taught me how to be strong in many ways. And he taught me how to be um, an advocate. And he taught me how to be um, powerful and stand up for, for him and for, you know, on behalf of all of my patients to advocate for what they need. And so I really do try to, to hold that promise that I made to Colin and not let him be forgotten because he serves for me as really a, a, a metaphor for the care that I provide to all of the patients and families I'm lucky enough to work with or fortunate enough to work with and, and just being strong and advocating for their wishes. And, you know, I keep in touch with Colin's mom. And just a few weeks ago, she told me that their family keeps the words get the get the gecko as their mantra and I had no idea that that was that important to them but um, I now think about that ever since she told me that about maybe get the get the gecko should be the, my mantra too in the sense of 
you know, carpe diem and live your life. And um, yes, sometimes you have to think about the risk of infection, so to speak, but, but sometimes getting the gecko is the more important thing to do. And so I was really um, touched to hear that their family still keeps that. And I think that was an important lesson for me to keep that message as well. Thank you, Vanessa, for sharing that. I, I have to ask on the, uh, you recently did a, an episode um, of Storytellers for Movers and Shakers Experience. Um, and how, how was that received? How was the story received within the audience when you did this live? Was this the story? And what was yes. that experience like? Yes. So the, the story of Colin was the story I told through that, um, that event. And, you know, it was interesting. I was, I was nominated to be a part of that event. You know, someone had to put our name forth to be a storyteller. And then we had to be interviewed and sort of, we didn't really audition, but we had to interview and have our story selected. And so when I was first nominated, you know, I, I received an email saying you've been nominated to be a part of this event. And I had learned a little bit about storytelling and I had been to one of these events before. I thought it was a great thing, but I really wondered why I was being nominated for this. I thought, well, you know, what story am I possibly going to tell? And the person who nominated me was one of my professors and, and knew the work that I do. But um, I thought, well, I don't, I was concerned that I didn't have my own story to tell, that my story was so much a part or just my story was really the, the patient stories and the family stories. And, and those are separate from my stories, you know, when you went from my story, when, when you, when you work in, in palliative care, you have to be careful about boundaries in some ways. Right. And, and boundaries are a tough thing in palliative care because we often cross boundaries, right? These are very different boundaries than um, other areas of, of medicine and nursing. And that's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's just different in the care that we provide. And so, because you are often crossing boundaries, you're, you're, you're for one thing, crossing the huge boundary between life and death every day. And so um, boundaries get blurred. And so the, the story is the separation really between my story as a palliative care provider versus my patients and family stories as living this experience. And so my concern was, well, what's my story? Um, it's really the patient stories. And in, you know, I, I interviewed for it. I went for it. I interviewed for the storytelling event. And, you know, during the interview, I expressed my concern about separating that out. And so the challenge then became to tell Colin's story, which was the story I ended up telling from my perspective as a, as a care provider. And the theme for that storytelling event was women specifically who in their careers had some way um, stood up for justice or been bold or brave. And it took me some time to really think about it, but I was able to tell the story of caring for Colin from my perspective and how Colin allowed me to be bold and brave as a provider. And that's why I mentioned at the end of the story about how he empowered me to really be an advocate for him. And so it was in caring for him that I found my own voice to be bold and to be brave and to, you know, tell the oncology team, no, that we need to make a shift and to, um, you know, because the oncology team was doing what they're supposed to do, which is trying to give him his life and 
and get him to be better. And so um, there were so many pieces where I really had to just learn. And I did from Colin and that experience and caring for him, how to be bold and brave. And so when I told this, this story at the event, I think people were, um, people were silent, which they're not often. Um, and obviously many of them were moved to tears because I think when you tell a story about a dying child or young adult, especially when it came to the end of the story where I talked in detail about the night that Colin died, you know, that's very moving for people, but there was a, um, so it felt like it was a very moving and important event and the story was well, well received, but, you know, I, I shared in that story how I promised Colin that he would never be forgotten. And when I finished the story and we had, a, I was, there was, you know, a break then during the event and like the cocktail reception. And um, there was a, an older woman in the audience who I'd never met before and still don't know exactly who she is. And she came up to me and she said, you promised Colin he would never be forgotten and I will never forget you. And I will remember that woman. Um, I don't know who she was or where she came from, but she took the time to come to me and tell me that. And um, and and that in itself was the impact, right? Of just sharing a story of the good work that we're doing has such an impact on people's lives because it makes you think about things in a different way. It inspires us. It inspires us. It, um, you know, I was taking notes, Vanessa, as you were sharing the story. I want to give you back a couple of things that, that stood out to me. Mm. So your message of be quiet and listen mm -hmm. came through. Um, be their voice, become their advocate. We do remarkable work. We need to try to make it a little bit better. There's joy in our work. We have a privilege of caring. Being a part of something beautiful, however that's defined. Having this kindness of humanity heroes to their care, being taught how to be strong, to advocate, to remember, and get the gecko. Mm -hmm. That's what came out of that seven minutes, Vanessa, of your story. And I think that it's, uh, it is remarkable work. And you have, um, you know, people that are entering this specialty to do this remarkable work and, and, what do you see as, as the vision for hospice and palliative nursing? Where do you see us in 10 years? How can we be these heroes? Do you mean specifically where, where, where do I see this in, in, the, in the pediatric world or just in general? No, in pediatrics, because pediatrics. that's your, yeah, that's your world. I think that this question gets asked often in palliative care circles. And we've had a lot of discussions around it and in, in, with various people in the field of whether or not someone is called to palliative care or just sort of ends up there, right? In, in palliative care, and this could be palliative care in general or pediatric palliative care. I think if you're, you know, if you're called to pediatrics, then, then it would be pediatric palliative care. Um, but and the, and the debate is out, right? Some people say that you're absolutely called to this work and some people think that perhaps you just end up there. And I'm not sure how I feel exactly 100% on this, but 
I do think to some extent, at least, people are called to this work. And whether it's a calling or you sort of believe in that philosophy or however you describe it, I don't think people end up in pediatric palliative care by accident. I don't think it works for people who say, oh, I was looking for a job. And so there happened to be this job posting at palliative care. I'll try that. Right. There right. Be, um, you know, there, there, there may be a few people who end up there that way in the sense of, I never thought I'd do this, but I was making a job change or whatever, that somehow their path led them there. But I think once you get there, you, you find yourself there for a reason, right? And you are somehow in whatever if you want to call it, if you want to call it a calling or, you know, meaning to be there or whatever it is for you. I think when, once you get there, you sort of figure out that this is where you're meant to be. And I think what I see is our vision for that going forward is that people have to nurses or pediatric palliative care nurses or nurse practitioners or whatever level you are have to figure out if this is the place to be for them. And if it is, it's to, to find it, to stick with it and to make it work somehow. And there are many ways in which pediatric palliative care can be applied. And I think that's where I really see the future going. There will never be a day, unfortunately, where the palliative care team will be able to be a part of every single illness and death that occurs in a hospital. I know in our hospital, we could never, there's, you know, a few hundred deaths a year and you could never be a part of every single one of those experiences. And that's not really what palliative care is meant to do. You're not meant to necessarily be a part of every single one of those experiences. But I think what we do need to do and are responsible for is making sure that providers and nurses and nurse practitioners in every specialty and in every area feel equipped to do some of this work. And that's talking about, you know, primary palliative care and secondary palliative care. And without getting into all the details of that, really just, I see the vision as living in a world, in a, in a healthcare system where everyone feels equipped to have these conversations and to sit with families and not run out of the room and to sit with the hard questions. And it's not gonna be everybody's cup of tea and it's not gonna be everybody's specialty area and it's not gonna be where everybody feels most comfortable. But I think there will be a shift to, or there needs to be a shift to a, a place where all providers feel like they can at least do some of this. Because in whatever specialty area you're practicing in, you know your patients best. And Palliative care providers can certainly not be the expert in every single area. It's just impossible. So we need to partner with those teams, whether it's, you know, the neuromuscular team or the, you know, renal team or whatever, the hematology team, whatever service it may be, to work with them, right? And that's one of our messages in palliative care is we're not taking over for that team. We're working with that team to and, and empowering them to really have the, the skills to sit and talk with their patients and families about what they would want and what they want their lives to be like and about what matters to them and what's important to them. And so I think I see the vision as twofold or obviously multifaceted, but two important things. One is empowering and teaching and allowing people to do this in many other specialty areas. And I think simultaneous with that is also maintaining the, the, the art of, of, 
providing high quality palliative care. So while we need it to spread into other areas, we will always still need people who do this as their specialty and can be the ones to teach the skills and do this primarily and um, work with patients and families. And I think now more than ever, I mean, look at the world we're living in right now, palliative care is essential and it will always be essential because we would never think of in medical school or nursing school, not teaching somebody about the kidney because maybe you won't see a patient with a nephrology problem, right? Right. You would never right. think about skipping some other area because maybe it won't be important to you. Well, we can't skip this part of it either because, you know, spoiler alert, death is a part of life. And so I think it's, um, that's the vision is that this is a part of care universally, right? I mean, we started there, Florence Nightingale was providing palliative care, right? And so I think we will, we will end there too, in whatever way that, that may be, is that palliative care is the thread that runs through all that we do in nursing. And that's where I see this really going, is that um, there will be more of this instead of less of this. It will become more commonplace. I know in the 10 plus years I've been doing this, it's people don't necessarily, people know the word palliative care now in a way that they didn't before. They may not fully understand it, but they at least don't look at you quite the same way when you say the words palliative care. And so I think we're, we're going to keep moving that direction and this will become more and more mainstream and more and more integral. Vanessa, you just, you just gave a beautiful quote. Palliative care is a thread that runs through all nursing. Um, that, that's exactly, that's the vision. And, and, and you said it beautifully. Thank you. Knowing what you know, today, Vanessa. Um, think back uh, to what words of advice would you give your early career nurse about a career in pediatric palliative nursing? Hmm. Think back 12 years, 15 years, however long back. What advice would you give yourself? Yeah. Well, Monday, mo Monday morning quarterbacking is always an easier thing to do, right? So I think it's, it's um, in some ways, we, we can always look back and say, what would we do differently and how can we make it better? I think the biggest piece that, the biggest piece of advice that I would have given myself or that I would give to any, you know, novice entering into this now would be not to be afraid. And sure, there are moments, there are moments when you still feel fear or anxiety about walking into a situation that may seem unknown or a situation that is tough to navigate for whatever reason. But I think it's to, to not be afraid and to stay and don't run away, right? To, to stay and to not be afraid to pull up a chair and listen. And I don't think that I necessarily, as far as telling my advice that, I don't think I necessarily had difficulty doing that, but I think it took time to grow into. And, and that's natural. I think when you're new at this, it's hard to, to not be afraid and it's hard to not run away. But I think the, the advice would be to, to really to just stay and pull up a chair and listen. And going back to, you know, that, that piece from even the story with Colin is to just be quiet and listen. You know, when, when you get a call in palliative care or you know, I remember this in the beginning too, as far as advice and giving myself is your mind starts racing with having to come up with the answer right away. And what am I going to do? And what am I going to say? And how am I going to tell this family? And they're afraid. And what, 
And, and sometimes the, the best advice is to just stop, center yourself, settle, be still, and listen. And so I think that goes along with the not being afraid is that, yes, you may not have all the answers and you will always need to phone a friend and you will, you know, there'll be times when you're thinking inside, I have no idea how I'm going to approach this, but to not be afraid in those moments and to just pull up a chair and stay and listen and the answer will eventually come and you'll figure it out. And the answer might not come in that moment and it may be through some hard work and you know, lots of discussions with other colleagues and figuring it out, but to, but to be empowered to know that you can do this work and you're there for a reason and you can do this well and to not be afraid of it. Vanessa, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your remarkable journey with us and HPNA's podcast corner, as well as all of our, our listeners on this. Um, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate and we appreciate what you do, um, how much you do for your patients and your families and for, for the future nurses out there and, and palliative nursing, as well as those of us that have chosen this remarkable career to, to be our, our life quest and our vocation. Um, it, it's just been a true joy to, to sit with you today. And um, I, wanna, I wanna thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and to um, to be a part of anything that I get to do with you and with HPNA. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And I also really appreciate the way that you always listen and find um, the little hidden words and tokens. And I think you have a true gift for that. And you've been really a mentor and a, and a partner in many ways throughout much of this work. And so I thank you for your contributions and for the opportunity to be a part of this today. Thank you so much. Thank you.